2, Acts chapter 2, turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. We're going to be going there in just a moment. A few introductory comments here. Is your family a Christian family? You know, that's not really what the sermon's about, but I'm going to, I've been preaching about knowing Jesus in 2020. Knowing Jesus in 2020, and I'm wondering, is, does your family know Jesus? And I'm not talking about your children or grandchildren knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior. I'm saying, is Jesus the center of your family? As, as you know, if you ask your children, you know, is Jesus the center of our family? That would be a really interesting thing to ask, wouldn't it? Because, you know, as pastors, we oftentimes... Um, if I talk with other pastors, even church leaders, get discouraged because it doesn't look like Jesus is the center of most of our churches across the United States, or even most of Bethel. Bethel friends, is Jesus the center of your family? Many times, I think we, we focus on what we, we want our kids to have a biblical worldview in, and that's really critical. We want our kids to know proper doctrine, hopefully, and that's really critical. That's, that's really, really important. But hopefully... I think what is most important is that we have a relationship with Jesus where Jesus is the center. And Jesus is the center for our family too. If we skip church for frivolous reasons and skip Sunday school for frivolous, frivolous reasons, our kids are going to see that. If every excuse we get, we think, I'm tired, I've had a rough day, I'm going to skip Wednesday night Bible study. That's what our kids, our kids are taught more by those actions than what we're actually teaching them. Is Jesus the center of your family? Is Jesus the center? Is your family a Christian family? That's, that's a question I have. And I would encourage you, you know, we're talking, I've been talking about how you can know Jesus. Your family can know Jesus in these same things. We need family spiritual disciplines through devotions, but also, you know, spiritual habits as a family. Going to church as a family. Going to Sunday school as a family. Going to Bible study as a family. Modeling that Jesus is number one. Jesus is number one within our family. And that's really critical. That is so critical. You know, a few weeks ago, I think it was two weeks ago, uh, basketball star Kobe Bryant died suddenly. It shocked the nation. You know, there are people who probably never, ever met Kobe Bryant. I've never met him. You know, and maybe some of you have, who were just shocked and in grief and in mourning over Kobe Bryant. But, you know, it is a reminder to all of us, isn't it? Make what we do in this life count towards the next. And I'm not saying what he did didn't count. I know he was very devoted to his family. Hopefully he was a Christian. I'm not sure. But we never know when God's going to call us home. You know, store up treasures in heaven. Store up treasures in heaven. Now, today, we're going to go to knowing Jesus through the corporate church. Now, what is the corporate church? The corporate church, has, at least when I talk about the corporate church, I'm talking about the church gathered. Knowing Jesus through worshiping as a body of Christ, like, like this group right now. But I go beyond that. Knowing Jesus through the corporate church, midweek Bible studies, Sunday school, um, small groups, a strong strength of Celebrate Recovery which I would love to see happen at Bethel, friends. A strong strength I've seen in Celebrate Recovery is that they build up transparent, confidential Christian community groups. They build up small groups where people can confess and talk about the things they're struggling with, and they can pray for one another, and they can confess sins to one another, and, and repent to each other, and build each other up. 
as a community of Christians, we need community. We need community. For example, a great lesson with respect to community can, can um, be learned from snowflakes. Snowflakes. We haven't had a lot of snowflakes this year, have we? A little bit on Friday morning, a little bit in November, not much. Um, you know, one single snowflake doesn't make much of a difference, does it? Yesterday I was out running, it was flurrying or snowing the whole time. We didn't get, like, any accumulation, I don't think. One snowflake, a few snowflakes, doesn't really affect anything. But when you get a bunch of snowflakes together, a lot of snowflakes together, coming down heavily, big snowflakes, small snowflakes, a bunch of snowflakes, it makes a huge difference, doesn't it? One thing I find interesting about snow is it can shut a culture down. It can shut a community down. It can bring everything to a halt. It can bring an administration to a halt. A few years ago, I think a bunch of snow hit Washington, D.C. They called it Snowmageddon. A few years before that, I think it was 2010, there was a bunch of snow, a lot of snow. I like snow, but not where I live anymore. I just like to look at it on the Weather Channel. A few years ago, a bunch of snow hit Minneapolis, Minnesota, and their dome collapsed. I was like watching it thinking, this is Minneapolis. Aren't they used to it? My brother's church, he's in Bloomer, Wisconsin. They got so much snow last year, like 95 inches in the month of February alone, that they had to gather church members to help shovel the snow off the roof of the church. I hope we don't have to do that. Snowflakes, one snowflake, big deal. A bunch of snowflakes, a really, really, really big deal. If that is the power of the United Snowflakes, can you imagine the power generated when people are united? When Christians come together in unity, in true fellowship, we can do marvelous, awesome things for the Lord and for his kingdom. Let me ask you, what does the communal aspect of the church mean to you? What does the community aspect of Christianity mean to you? How have, how have your Christian friends supported you in the past? I strongly believe many Christians in the United States miss out the power of God because we're not really connected to the people of God. I strongly believe the Lord works powerfully through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, and through the church. And when those things are connected together, there is power. When the Holy Spirit is connected with the Word of God and with the church, there is power. And it's power that we are missing because we're not really connected with the church. My brother used to come home from work, my older brother. I'm a middle child. It's really, really difficult. Um, my brother used to come home from church, and he would say, Pastor Steve. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't say Pastor Steve. He would come home from work, and he would say, Steve. He would say, Steve, uh, I met this great Christian man at work. He knows the Bible so very well. The, the way he lives matches what he says. He's a good man. I mean, the way my brother talked, it even sounded like he could go on and say, he saw Moses part the Red Sea, and he was a small boy who gave Jesus his lunch to serve the 5,000. And my brother really pumped up this man he would meet at work. But, my brother would say, he never goes to church. There are too many hypocrites at church. That's what he would always say. And, and to an extent, a lot of people say that. I'm sure you've heard it. I don't go to church. There's too many hypocrites there. And, and, and I, I really believe that's a cop-out. I really believe you can make up any excuse you want out of anything. You'll find it. You know, we're a 
we're, we're a place for sinners, a hot, and, and we can come and get help, and we can use one more always. It used to be that I didn't have the best answer to what my brother would say. Sure, I could cite passages like Hebrews 10.25, where the author of Hebrews says not to give up meeting together, spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. But something hit me a few years ago. It was like lightning just struck my head, but it didn't really hurt, which is good. Uh, the thought came to me, who was the New Testament written to? The church. The, church. Who, the New Testament was written to the church. Many of the books of the New Testament, most of the books of the New Testament, maybe all of the books of the New Testament are written to the church specifically. I'll give you a few examples. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2 is addressed to the church of God in Corinth. Wow, to the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 is written to the church of God in Corinth. 1 and 2 Thessalonians are written to the church in Thessalonica. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 have statements directed to the seven churches. Revelation is a very interesting, you know, example because each of these are written to churches. But even the whole letter of Revelation is written to the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we have instructions for the setup of elders and deacons in the church. In Titus chapter 1... We also have instructions for elders in the church. These letters are written to the church. The setup of the church, the, the, the um, taking care of the church, the building up of the church. Instructions in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and 6. We have instructions with how to handle um, offering gifts and, and, and food and needs to widows and orphans. It's all to the church. I don't know, you know, we can get a lot of instruction about how to run a church just from the New Testament. And we ought to. That's our base. That's the word of God. In fact, the term translated as church is used 79 times in the New Testament. 79 times in the New Testament. So the church is pretty darn important. I now know from New Testament studies that the apostle would write a letter, for example, 1 Corinthians. And then the people would come together to eagerly listen as it was read. They would come together. I, I think I referenced this last week. Paul would write Romans. And a woman delivered Romans. Or at least it seems like a woman delivered Romans. And this woman would deliver Romans to the church. The people would gather in somebody's house. And they would all listen as the epistle, the letter was read. They came together as a church. And they needed each other. Most of them were not that literate. I've heard as few as 5% of the people in the first century were literate. I've heard as high as 15%. In fact, the New York Times had an article uh, that I read this morning about literacy rates going down, actually, in the United States because humanities is not focused on as much. You know, it, being able to read and write is a great, great, great privilege. Well, most of the people couldn't read. They needed each other so that they could have the letters, the Word of God read to them. By the way, since I brought it up, to be literate in the first century meant that you could recognize road signs. It really didn't mean that you could read and write as we think of it today. They came together. They depended upon each other as a community. They were persecuted. They needed each other. So I hope that today's message will challenge you to a deeper commitment to fellowship with God and with the church. A deeper commitment to fellowship with God and with the church. I hope today's message will help you understand what fellowship entails. 
This is important for each follower of Christ and for the church corporately. We know Jesus through knowing the church family. As you know, I've been preaching about knowing Jesus in 2020. So today I want to focus on the church. One way we know Jesus is through his church. So my theme today is knowing Jesus through the corporate church. And if you haven't turned to Acts 2, 42 through 47, I'm going to read that in a minute. But first I want to talk about fellowship with God. If we really want to talk about fellowship, let's talk about fellowship with God first. First, our problem our problem, I said that wrong, is that because of sin, our fellowship with God is broken. We cannot have true fellowship with other believers until we have true fellowship with God. We have to have a restored relationship with God. True fellowship begins with God. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that God and humans had fellowship with one another. Adam and Eve walked with God. This fellowship happened in the Garden of Eden, which God created for Adam and Eve. But when Adam and Eve sinned, that sin placed a barrier, a canyon, a gulf between God and man, between God and humanity, and that fellowship was broken. All throughout the Old Testament, God was showing the people that that barrier cannot be held on our own. We cannot fix ourselves. We cannot fix our relationship with God. We cannot fix our fellowship with God. But God longs for a relationship with us. God wants a relationship with every one of us. God created us to glorify him. And he does love us. But we don't have true fellowship with each other until we have true fellowship with God. So we need to get right with God and then we can be right with each other. The first part of fellowship is with God. And this is restored in Jesus Christ who died to heal your relationship with him. That only happens by trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. First, we have to commit our lives, you know, confess we are sinners in need of a Savior, believe in Jesus as the one and only Savior, trust in him and commit to him. That is first, and that is the most important thing. After that, we can focus on fellowship with one another. Now, true fellowship with believers. That brings us to Acts 2, 42 through 47. In Acts 2, 42 through 47, uh, Pentecost had happened. The Holy Spirit had come upon the church. The apostle Peter, who was denying Jesus 40 days or 50 days, 50 days before this, is now a powerful preacher, and some 3,000 are saved. Now, let's read this passage. This is right after they're saved. And it says, they, that's the early disciples, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and a fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They were, not one time, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's discipleship. They're studying what became our New Testament. They're focusing on fellowship. Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Miracles. Verse 44. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Ministry. Serving. Verse 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. That's unity. And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, 
They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Evangelism. We see all five purposes of the church right here. And they're all wrapped around fellowship. Right in this passage, we see evangelism. We see evangelism. In this passage, we see discipleship. They're disciples in that they are studying the apostles' teaching, but they are disciples in that they are living the apostles' teaching. They're disciples in that they're sharing the gospel. Listen, we are not true disciples if we're not making disciples, sharing the gospel with others. That would be a sin. We're called to share the gospel. That's a commandment. Okay? Right here in this passage, we see worship. They're praising God. Right here in this passage, we see ministry. They're serving. They're sacrificing for one another. And we see fellowship repeated throughout this whole passage. We see great, great unity in the church. Notice that all of these verses have to do with a group of people. The New Testament church. None of the verses that I just read have to do with an individual. None of them have to do with an individual. Verse 42 says, They... They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is discipleship practiced in fellowship. Fellowship means to come together with a common purpose. We come together with a common purpose. We are united with a common purpose. This verse gives an example of teaching and practicing the teachings of the apostles as a community. The text uses the pronoun they to refer to who was doing what. This is more than one person. This is a community, a community gathered together. Verse 42 also, also says they are about fellowship and prayer. They are breaking bread together. This probably means that they are eating meals together and they might be taking communion, the Lord's Supper, together. It doesn't specifically say that. But a lot of times in the first century, the Lord's Supper went alongside an actual dinner together. Notice how the text says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They are studying together. They are being devoted to the teaching of what became the New Testament. And they were doing this together. They were doing this as a body of Christ. Notice how it says they were devoted to fellowship. It specifically says fellowship. You know, we, here's an application, we must also teach and live the scriptures as a community. We must teach and live the scriptures as a community. We must also eat meals together and take communion together. And we definitely must pray together. Listen, we can pray alone, but I really do believe prayer is more powerful as a body of Christ. And I know that there are many people in this church family who would likely love to have other church members and friends to pray with. And so we need to share that with one another. The most spirit-empowered times of prayer that I have had have been with other Christians, not by myself. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives instructions on confronting sin. In Matthew 18, 15 through 17. It's very important for us today. And then immediately following that, immediately following that, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with you. Now, how many Christians does it take to have the Holy Spirit with us? Well, it says two or three right there, but... Does that mean you don't have the Holy Spirit with you if you're all alone in your bedroom? No, no one. 
The Holy Spirit is with every one of us. But it is interesting right there that Jesus still says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am with you. What it seems to me, and I heard a Messianic Jew tell, say this once, uh, a, a person who was raised Jewish, knew Jewish culture and became a Christian, what it seems to me is that Jesus is encouraging the people, you're going to face difficulties, and remember, you're stronger together. You're stronger together. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am with you. Remember that in the Old Testament times, it took two or three witnesses to establish a crime and prosecute a crime. We are stronger when we are together. Certainly, you have the Holy Spirit with you when you're alone. Celebrate that. Worship God when you're all by yourself, too. But be united in the fellowship with the body of Christ. We need each other. Notice verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. You see, they were devoted to fellowship, and the Holy Spirit was very active. Verses 44 and 45 are a summary describing what this community was like. They were together, and they had all things in common. They shared with one another. They willingly shared with one another. Okay, It was a willing thing where they decided somebody has a need. I want to meet that need. I want to step up and meet that need. They willingly sacrificed for one another. Do we do this? Do we share with those who have need? And I know that many of you are very, very, very generous people. But it's something to apply and think about how we are doing sharing with one another as anyone has need. Verse 46 continues talking about what they were doing. And it talks about their attitude as well. And it says they were doing this daily. They were united in the temple. Now why does it say the temple? It's because at this point the Christians were still meeting in the temple. Later on they met in house churches. In fact, uh, recent excavations in Jerusalem on the Western Hill, which would be part of the upper city, have resulted in the discovery of a residential district in the ancient city. There were many houses in this area that would have belonged to the wealthier inhabitants of the city. So there were houses that were big enough to host a church. And by the way, the Jerusalem church became a very, very, very large church, the first megachurch. And then persecution came. And we see that in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8. And the disciples fled, except for the apostles. The apostles stayed. But the rest fled. And they took the gospel with them. They were contagious Christians. They went to Antioch. You know what? Antioch became one of the largest sending churches in the New Testament. And we do not know who started the church in Antioch. We can't say it was John. We can't say it was Paul. We can't say it was Peter. It was a layperson. It was a layperson that went there when persecution came and spread the gospel. They took the gospel with them. They were a community meeting in houses. Notice back here in this text, Acts 2, 46 and 47. The text says they had a good attitude about what they were doing. My translation says gladness and sincerity of heart. They had gladness and sincerity of heart in their fellowship. How are we with our attitude? How are we doing? How are we with doing things as a community? Are we happy to be with other Christians? Now, don't get me wrong. If we're having a bad day, it's okay to meet with your close brothers and sisters in Christ and share that. But do we try to choose joy? 
Do we try to check our attitude? I try to tell my kids, but I need this told to me sometimes too, is, look, we can choose how we're going to react to things. Abigail had four days off of school because of the flu, and she did not want to go back to kindergarten because (laughs) kindergarten is really, really rough. I'm just kidding. But she did not want to go back. She's crying. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Look, I told her, look, you're not going to have a choice. You're going to kindergarten whether you want to or not. But you can choose your attitude. You can choose to make this a good day or a bad day. How are we doing with our attitude? Are are we trying to make our attitude the best of all circumstances? Acts 2 verses 42 through 47 is a model example of the early church. It's a model example that we should strive for. You know, when I talk about knowing Christ, we need to know Christ being part of a holistic community. And so should our families. I'm afraid that most Christian families, correction, most pseudo-Christian families are more committed to the things of the world than the things of Christ. And we need to put Jesus as number one. We need Jesus to be the center, and that includes God's church. I don't have it in the notes, but this is extra credit. I'll give it to you. In Acts chapter 9, Jesus encounters the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul didn't persecute Jesus directly. Saul was persecuting the church. He was ravaging the church, wanting to kill them. And Jesus identified with that. Jesus said he persecuted him. Jesus identifies with the church. The church is the bride of Christ. We need to be closely woven together with the church. And when we don't, when we aren't, we likely don't know Christ, at least not to the way he wants us to. We might have eternal life in him, but we really don't have a close relationship with him. In, Acts, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul talks about being, us being judged for our works. And then Paul gives this startling statement. He talks about people who will get to heaven narrowly escaping the flames of hell. Wow. That's where we say they get to heaven, but they still smell like smoke. <laughs> get to heaven narrowly escaping the flames. We don't want to be there. We want to know Christ, to have a relationship with Christ. And one way we know Christ is being closely woven together with our church family. We need the church. We need each other. I strongly believe throughout church history, they would know nothing of our isolated, individualistic Christianity that we have today. So in my study, I came across a Tyndall Bible Dictionary's article on fellowship. This article gave seven things, seven things that should be a part of our fellowship. I want to share these with you. Love one another with the same compassion that Christ displayed to his own. Love one another with the same compassion that Christ displayed to his own. The law of the fellowship should be the rule of love. Number two, cultivate that spirit of humility that seeks the other person's honor. Cultivate that spirit of humility that seeks the other person's honor. A reference point would be Philippians 2, 3 through 4. In Philippians 2, 3 through 4, the Apostle Paul says, Perceive others as more important than yourselves. Look for others' needs before your own. Number three, cultivate, no, number three, lighten, lighten fellow believers' loads. 
by bearing one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. Number four, share material blessings with brothers and sisters in need. Share material blessings. Number five, tenderly correct a sinner while helping to find solutions to the problems. Correct sin, that's part of fellowship. We think that's being judgmental. No, that's grace. If I'm living in sin and a brother in Christ confronts me, which allows me to repent of that sin, that's grace. That's a good thing. That keeps me from going down that road. Tenderly correct a sinner. That's part of fellowship. Number six, reinforce a fellow believer in times of suffering. Reinforce a fellow believer in times of suffering. Number seven, pray for one another in the spirit without ceasing. Pray for one another in the spirit without ceasing. We need each other. We need the church. We need the church to grow spiritually. We need the church to truly know Christ. You know, it's funny because, you know, I, as a pastor, I hear certain things. And, and sometimes I have to ask myself, how do they expect me to respond to this? I mean, do they know that, you know, my calling and career has been pastoral ministry? So I was at somebody's house once and we were working on their house and they said, oh, you know, we almost skipped church today. Well, I'm glad you didn't. God wanted you there. God might have wanted to share something with you at church today. People get busy and they say, I'm busy. I, I just had to skip church a few weeks to catch up on work. Well, I'm glad that Jesus doesn't skip out on you when, you know, when he's busy running the world. You know, think about it. Do you think that just because you're busy, it's good to skip church? You need Jesus more when you're busy. You know, set your priorities straight. Jesus first. And Jesus first means the community of Christians first. We need the church. And we need to realize that. The problem is when you realize that, it's going to be late. We're going to realize that when persecution comes, when the church is meeting underground, when Bibles are illegal, like they are in the Middle East right now. They realize they need each other. And the church is growing by leaps and bounds because they're a community connected with each other. We need the church. And to the extent that you invest in these spiritual disciplines, in these spiritual habits, it will be the depth of your relationship with God. If you view these spiritual disciplines, these spiritual habits that I've been talking about lately, if you view them lightly, your relationship with God will be shallow as it can be or non-existent. If you take them seriously and you go deep in your Bible reading, you go deep in your Bible listening, you go deep in your study of the Bible, deep in your meditating on the Word of God, deep in your memorization of the Word of God, deep in your commitment to the church, you're going to have a deep relationship with God. And God wants you to have that depth in the relationship with him. God yearns for that relationship with him. I, I believe that. He wants you to know him deeply. He already knows you deeply. He wants that. The question is, do you want that? And are you willing to sacrifice for it? We choose to love God. We choose to serve God because he first loved us, I know. But we need to make that choice. And it's discipline. Discipline yourself unto godliness. Discipline yourself to serve him and follow him. I have a passage I wish to close this message with. Revelation 21.3. Revelation 21.3. They're about to go into the new Jerusalem. And John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. This is the new Jerusalem. God will dwell with us in the new Jerusalem. God will literally, physically fellowship with us in the New Jerusalem. And we'll fellowship with one another. 
That's one of the things I always think when people tell me they can't go to church, there's too many hypocrites. Well, who do you expect to spend eternity with? Now, granted, we'll all be totally sanctified and totally righteous, but if you don't want to spend your life right now with other Christians, I doubt you're going to want to spend eternity with Christians. Rick Sams, the pastor of Alliance Friends, who retired, kept a hard hat in his office because people would say, if I go to church, I'm going to need a hard hat. He would say, we have one for you, you know, because they would say the church might collapse, you know. We're ready for you. We need the community. We need the community of Christians. We need to prioritize the church. When I was a child, I received a Mr. Potato Head for Christmas. I wanted to bring it uh, with me today, but it has long since been donated, the one from when I was a child. But then our kids had one, and that's been donated too, probably to the great giveaway. Well, anyways, Mr. Potato Head for Christmas. I didn't like Mr. Potato Head. In fact, I still remember opening that gift, and I probably thought Santa gave it to me, because they disrespectfully said just what I didn't want, Mr. Potato Head. But Mr. Potato Head gives a perfect example for fellowship, because with Mr. Potato Head, you can put the arms where the leg goes. You can put the arm where the head goes. You can put the head where the feet go, or the feet where the eyes go. You can mix and match. In 1 Corinthians 12, that's your homework, read 1 Corinthians 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul talks about the church as a body of Christ. He compares the church to a body. And he says, in the body we have many parts for the same purposes. Some are the eyes, some are the ears, some are the legs, some are the internal organs. We need all the parts. It wouldn't look right to have the eye where the ear is supposed to be or the ear where the eye is supposed to be or the hand where the foot is supposed to be. We can't mix and match our parts in the body and we can't mix and match our parts in the church. You all have different gifts. All of us have different gifts. And the church needs your gifts and you need the church. We need each other. Every part has its place. In a church, all the gifts and the gifted people have their place. The Bible teaches a cord of three strands is not easily broken. That's Ecclesiastes 4.12. This means that we can support each other and strengthen each other. The Bible also teaches that iron sharpens iron and a man sharpens his brother. This means we can sharpen each other. The Christian life is not meant to be lived individualistically. We are meant to be a community. Sometimes we need to sharpen one another by saying, Hey, what you said to so-and-so the other day was offensive. You need, to, you need to repent of that. Sometimes we need to encourage one another. Give each other a call. Send a card to people. Stop by and visit. We need each other. Sometimes we need to support one another. And we are stronger together. You know, I try to listen to different counseling programs. And one of them focuses on a certain type of addictions. And every week in their podcast, in their writings, in their things, they'll come back to how much we need spiritual disciplines to overcome addictions. We need time in the Word to overcome what we're struggling with. We need time in prayer. We need time with the church. We need these things in the Christian life, whether it's overcoming an addiction or whether it's just growing in our relationship with God. And, you know, I'll meet with people and we'll talk about things they're struggling with. And then sometimes I have to think, whether I say it to them or not, you really don't want to overcome this, do you? Because if you really wanted to overcome this addiction, this sin, which is what it is, you'd be spending time in the Word. 
You would get in your car and when you have to go for a drive, you would listen to the Bible. When you have to go for, in the car for a drive, you would, you would listen to sermons or things like that. You would be in Sunday school. You would be in church. If you really want to overcome it. But that's work, isn't it? And growing in Christ will be work. But the rewards are amazing. So, know Christ through time with the church family. Know Christ through time with your church family. A single snowflake doesn't make much of a difference. One Christian is isolated and alone. A bunch of snowflakes make a, bunch of, a big difference and all the Christians coming together for the common goal of fellowship are strong and can do powerful, powerful, powerful things for God's kingdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would strengthen us in fellowship. Strengthen, strengthen the church family here, the body of Christ here in fellowship, Lord God. May we truly know you as a body of Christ in fellowship, Lord. May we know you through spending time in spiritual activities, Lord. May this church family, Bethel friends, may we know you through spending time in your word, in Bible study. May we know you by meditating on your word. May we know you by memorizing your word. May we memorize and meditate on your word through, with our church family. We may, may we memorize and meditate on your word with our biological family, with our children, with our grandchildren. May we be studying your word together with our family. May our families be focused on you, Lord. We need that. Lord God, may we pray to one another, confess our sins to one another, as James 5 says. May we bear one another's burdens. May we lift each other up. May we know you, Lord Jesus, through these spiritual habits. And Lord God, if there's anyone here who does not know you, or maybe needs to rededicate their life to you, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day where they confess they are a sinner in need of a Savior. Believe in you as only Savior trust in you and commit to you. Help us, Lord. We need your help. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. What a perfect hymn to close our